welcome to the European Football Show on the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Lisbon in Portugal. I'm joined today by three fantastic guests to talk about the week's action across Europe. Um, in Germany, uh, Jasmine Baba, how are you? Um, good. Busy with the news that's just come out this morning regarding a certain football team that I may or may not support, depending on the week. Um, so it feels like football news doesn't want us to rest. The international break is supposed to be about having a bit of a break, but it doesn't seem to be the case this morning. Um, John O'Sullivan, uh, out in the west of Ireland, how are you? I'm great, thanks. Sufficiently caffeinated to talk about what's been another crazy week of football. Fantastic. Uh, Robbie Dunn, in the Spanish capital, Madrid, how are you? I'm wonderful, thanks for having me on, uh, Alan. And Jasmine, I don't know about um, about Javi Alonso winning anything, but he's definitely increased their cool factor by about 10 points, definitely. We could have an argument about that, actually. Oh, really? We could just, comp- maybe not 10 times, have we just completely forgot how good-looking Marco Rose is? Certainly two dapper gentlemen leading one of the most stylish clubs in, in Germany. But uh, but we'll get on to that in a second. But first, I want to begin, as ever, John, in Anfield with Liverpool. Um, they were away at Wolves this week, uh, picked up a good uh, 1-0 victory. Um what did you make of this game? And do you think that the timing was almost perfect given that it came off the back of, you know, a successful Champions League outing um, and just in beho- before that international break? So I kind of gave him a two-week respite to um, kind of maybe recharge the batteries before the final push. Absolutely. From their perspective, it was brilliant to finally kind of tie some wins together after a really, really inconsistent run. If you actually look at it, they've been very good on the road this season. They've won at Chelsea, they've drawn at City, they've drawn at Everton, they've beaten Wolves away, they've beaten Spurs away, they've beaten West Ham, who I'm sure we'll touch on later, who are actually a contender for top four away. So their away form has been pretty good, and this was a continuation of that. Their performance was actually pretty patchy. Um, They've looked to play on the counter-attack more, Wolves have more possession, quite like they did uh, in the two Leipzig games, so that actually might be a course of action they rely upon against Madrid. But the performance wasn't fantastic. I think their their standout players are Ozan Kabak and Trent Alexander-Arnold, which probably gives you an idea of the flow of the game. But to, to go into that international break, which I think they they badly need, especially some of the players who have played so often in lieu of, uh, of all the injuries and that they've had to have played more, I think this will be a really good time for them to recuperate, especially the Brazilians who actually they won't play for their country in this international break. And then some of the African players like Naby Keza will only play once. So I think all in all, it, it, it's good timing for them. And it was great. It was great to get that win. Um, Wolves are nowhere near as potent as they were without Raul Jimenez, but they're still like a sticky team with their 3-4-3 formation, very well drilled on the break. So it was good win, not a fantastic performance, but they, they'll be very pleased to tie wins together for what feels like the first time in a long time. You heard a piece this week about Andy Robertson, kind of a defence of him. Um, and I was thinking that maybe he's kind of the perfect encapsulation or embodiment of this Liverpool team and that, you know, he was so lauded 12 months ago, you think it's impossible he'd ever come down off that pedestal. But this season, he's be- he's been the source of some... Um, not abuse, but criticism from Liverpool fans. You think? On the surface, like he hasn't been as good as last season, but I think you kind of need to see that in context. Like he never misses games; he plays all of the time. His left-sided centre half partner keeps changing because of Liverpool's injuries. Uh, the team's attacking potency is far lesser than what it was. So then you start to see why his assist figures aren't as uh, high as they would have been. 
And I think a big element of that as well is uh, Liverpool are nowhere near as good or as potent from set pieces as they were last season. So, for example, last season they scored 17 from set pieces, which is the joint top with City, which is surprising because you don't really associate City with being that good from set pieces. But now this season, they've only got six from set pieces and none since um, massive Van Dijk and Gomez has been injured. So when you look down at the high water mark for fullbacks and assists in the Premier League, it's Creswell and Dinia. But they play for teams like West Ham and Everton with double or more than double Liverpool's set-piece goals. Uh, West Ham have 14 and Everton have 12. So then you start to see Andy Robertson's five assists in that light. You actually think, yeah, he's actually done reasonably well for himself, all things considered. So I just think that with his, you know, supreme effort, I wrote I wrote in a piece that he plays with the mannerisms and with the dedication of the guy who tweeted about working in the tills and uh, MS 10 years ago. And like, I think that Liverpool fans really need to appreciate him and to look at his inverted commas, lack of form and context. He's still been pretty darn good considering he's played every single game for what feels like three years. They're drawn against Real Madrid in the quarterfinals of the Champions League, um, really mouthwatering tie, a repeat of the 2018 final, which Real Madrid, of course, won. Um, Robbie, I want to go to you, go to you in this one. Um, Madrid had a good week. Uh, they beat Atlanta 3-1 in the Champions League uh, to go through an aggregate after winning 1-0 in Bergamo in the first leg. And they also beat Celta Vigo 3-1 um, in Galicia on Saturday afternoon. Uh, Karen Benzema essential to both victories, scoring a, a brace in the game in Balaidos on Saturday afternoon. Um, what do you think about Real Madrid at the moment? They're kind of really in a good form, aren't they? They're in kind of a good ratcha, you could say, um, looking like they're kind of setting up for that end-of-season push where, you know, titles are decided and the big players come to the fore. Sergio Ramos is back in the fold. I know he didn't play on Saturday because he's carrying a bit of a knock, but I think when push comes to shove, he'll be there and available. Um, Karim Benzema is absolutely flying Luka Modric is playing like a man who's 28 rather than 25 he looks like he's in the best form of his life you could say alongside Tony Cruz and Casemiro in midfield uh, Thibaut Courtois is in excellent form also um, what do you make him endure at the moment uh, how good was their week and how confident do you think they'll be going into this kind of uh, Champions League and La Liga running yeah, I think um, good week, obviously, but not entirely convincing in that Celta Vigo when the, the third goal came late on that Celta Vigo were pushing for an equaliser and, and could have got it with a little bit more luck. Um, yeah, completely reliant on Karim Benzema, who has just been absolutely fantastic, not just in re- uh, since his return, but since Ronaldo left, really, like we, we weren't sure there was questions about whether he could be a superstar, whether he was a superstar, if he had the, if he had the mentality, if he had the um, that kind of uh, kind of ruthlessness, and he's just been absolutely amazing. I think he was probably underrated when Ronaldo was there, but since Ronaldo's left, he's 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 absolutely world class. Um, but not young and and. They are maybe an injury or two away from a complete meltdown. So while we'll talk about Barcelona, I'm sure Barcelona do seem a little bit more um, sturdy at the moment. And, and Real Madrid's form is fine and looks good on paper. But I think hasn't been altogether convincing. Uh, the plan as to how they're 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 um, they, they're trying to win games like um, with, with Vinicius starting Hazard out. Um, 
it's not exactly clear what they're what they're trying to do or what what, what the plan is, and and you feel like uh, Karim Benzema, Sergio Ramos injury, and uh, and they they could very well collapse. And given the fact that they're only in, they're still in La Liga, obviously, but kind of given given Atletico's lead and Barcelona's form, they're definitely third favourites for that. So we could almost write them off in that. Uh, but the Champions League, I, I mean, we're playing against Liverpool, who are a, who are a class side. So, and, and you know yourself how how the Madrid media is—it's trophies or nothing. So, good form and good form and good results are fine for for a couple of weeks, but one bad result and you're back in crisis mode again. So, um, not not entirely convinced about Real Madrid at the moment, and um, you, you won't be worried about about uh, further injuries down the line. Absolutely. Uh, Jasmine, just to ask you about Tony Cruz, because um, I think, uh, as I mentioned, Madrid has been in flying form, but Tony Cruz has also been pivotal to um, this Madrid team over the last five years or so. What's he viewed as in Germany? Because uh, in the case of England, say, or Spain, a lot of players, like just off the top of my head, you know, Kieran Trippi has gone playing La Liga and he's almost forgotten by the English media. And similarly, Sergio Hegelan has gone to... England, and he's almost forgotten by the Spanish media, um, not even in the Spanish squad for this international break. Um, how is Tony Cruz viewed in Germany? I think it's the same kind of thing in Germany. If you're not in Germany or making such a massive um, reputation for yourself in terms of how you play, you kind of get overlooked. And Tony Cruz doesn't really make the news here either. Um, I think. German media especially just kind of focuses on who's actually in their country at the moment. And I think that's just the way most of their culture is. Um, I mean, if he was doing something superb, then I think more would be talked about him. And I think we might see a little more of him. Now Real Madrid are uh, now qualified for the uh, quarterfinals in the Champions League, but as much as media speculation goes, you no, know, not much of him over here. Another man who is a member of that Madrid old guard who isn't really at Madrid anymore, of course, is Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, and he's the topic of much discussion at the moment, given uh, Juventus's form in Syria. Uh, uh, John, uh, Juve lost 1 0 to uh, ben- Benevento uh, this Sunday. Um, quite a bad result uh, for the Serie A champions from last season. And it's not been a very good season for them either, given they went out of the Champions League to Porto and are well off the pace in Serie A. Um, what did you make of this result? And what do you make of the whole Cristiano project? Um, do you think he's going to leave and go to Madrid, as has been mentioned? I think he could well do, because his his wages are quite like a noose around the neck of Juventus financially. Um, in a lot of places, I think that they would need to reinvest. But then, obviously... Paying him that much is a real uh, encumbrance to doing that. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if he were to leave Real Madrid, especially if Madrid think, for example, that they can sign Haaland or Mbappe, maybe not this summer, but down the line. So Ronaldo would be like an interim, like a placeholder in between getting one of those superstars. So yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, For this game in itself against Benevento, I mean, Juventus really were dominant in terms of possession and in terms of of shots. I mean, they had seven shots on target. Uh, Benevento had one and they scored from it. Um, But it's been more really typical of of Pirlo's Pirlo's stewardship of the team so far. I find that they're quite, 
maybe slow paced and maybe a bit blunt considering the attacking talents they have, not only Ronaldo, but Dybala and Kulosevsky as well. So I think it's maybe a little bit unsurprising because Pirlo is a manager who has a very strict adherence to a certain style of football, almost in a in a Pep Guardiola fashion. And, you know, this Juventus side maybe weren't quite used to what he wanted. Um, they didn't respond well to Sarri trying to do a similar thing with them, despite the fact that they won uh, they won the league. He, he, he was sacked. So I think Juventus really... I don't know what they expected from Pirlo with absolutely zero coaching experience. And I think this is, uh, this is bearing the fruit of it. Um, again, in Porto, I think Porto deservedly beat them in the Champions League. So there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot to be done at Juventus. And I don't think that Ronaldo will be part of their future. It'll just be interesting to see whether, you know, Madrid can, can really afford to pay them uh, a transfer fee that will recoup some of their initial investments. Um, whether it's worked out well or not is... On the surface, I think Ronaldo's goal figures, it's worked out well. But maybe the expectation was that he'd win the Champions League, which to me is, is it, it was a bit unrealistic to expect one player to have to make that much of a difference. So um, I think on the surface, uh, he, he'll probably point to it having worked out well. But the reality is, outside of obviously the financial uh, benefit that he's brought to them in terms of the commercial side, it mightn't have worked out as well as both parties would have expected. Speaking of things working out well, um, they're certainly working out well in Manchester, Manchester City. Uh, they beat Borussia Mönchengladbach 2-0 in the Champions League this week to secure their place in the quarterfinals where they play Borussia Dortmund. And we'll talk about them in a second. But first, Jasmine, I wanted to ask you about Borussia Mönchengladbach. Um, obviously, they lost this game 2-0, uh, went out with a bit of a whimper after losing the first leg similarly. Um, and then, But then they followed that up with a 3-0 defeat of Schalke. Um, there was also some quite big news uh, regarding Mushin Gladbach this morning. Can you just tell me about what this week has been like for Mushin Gladbach in terms of their disappointment in the Champions League, their kind of maybe mini comeback in uh, the Bundesliga, and also the kind of breaking news that's emerged today about Xabi Alonso? Um, it's been quite a weird week. I think a lot of Gladbach fans and the atmosphere around the club has been very, very dark recently. Um, it was a good seven, eight games in a row uh, without win um, and no one expected anything from the City match. Uh, I think it was put to bed quite early as soon as Manchester City scored their first goal within how early in the first half that it the hope went pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it was a good 3-0 win against Schalke in over the weekend but again it's Schalke uh, I wonder if um I was kind of speculating before the game if there was a few reports about Marco Rosa being fired if he had lost to Schalke my kind of initial thought was they were going to fire him either way because it's the international break and to be fair if if there was no contractual um problems over Rosa being sacked at this current moment, it would probably be easier to get their new coach in. What it turns out is that their new coach could be Xavi Alonso, and that's what Bill are reporting this morning, which is a huge coup. And I, I, as I was saying before we were recording the pod, that it was someone who had completely slipped my mind, 
who um, I forgot was coaching somewhere, didn't know about his contract terms with uh, Real Sociedad B, um, who knows German. Uh, one of his first interviews in 2014 was in a very Spanish German, quite basic, but for someone who just moved to Bayern Munich, it, <laughs> comparing it to someone like my German at the moment, it's very good. So he is one of those people who would... Um, put everything he's got into learning the language so I don't um, doubt his language skills and just someone who slipped my mind and um, I don't know what he's done with Real Sociedad B uh, maybe uh, you or John could tell me more about what his kind of coaching style and personality is because it, it seems like a big move for Mönchengladbach at the moment. Absolutely I mean I've done a bit, a bit of work on this in the past and um I think he's one of the most highly impressive characters in European football. I mean, as Robbie mentioned earlier, he's extremely cool, cool character, um, but also someone who really ha- kind of has his life in order, you could say almost. And, um, you know, I think he's had an incredible array of coaches to learn from, from uh, Jose Mourinho to Carlo Ancelotti to Rafael Benitez to uh, Pep Guardiola, of course. Um, and what I was really struck by when researching his time at uh, Real Sociedad B, um, where they're currently top of the Segunda B, which is the third division in Spanish football. Although it is slightly convoluted because uh, the third division in Spanish football is kind of separated into regions. So it's not like there's one division. There's several divisions within the division, but they're top of their uh, regional division. Um, but what I was most struck by him when he was speaking about his time there was that, you know, he really settled back in San Sebastian because obviously that's where he began his career before traveling abroad to Liverpool, to Bayern Munich and to Real Madrid. Um, but he's settled there with his family to kind of have them get that Basque experience and he's plugged into the club completely um, in that. I remember in the interview he was kind of talking about before, he said that he doesn't watch Liverpool on a Wednesday night or Real Madrid on a Tuesday night ever in the Champions League. He said if he's a spare moment, he's watching his rivals, you know, in the division because that's the level of football he's at at the moment. So he's very, very much someone who I think will work deliberately and intensely, much like Mikel Arteta, who is his old friend and former neighbour, both in San Sebastian and in in, uh, in in Liverpool. So I think, you know, his style is very much kind of a blend of, you know, Pep Guardiola's idealism with Carlo Ancelotti or Rafa Benitez's pragmatism. I think he'd be a absolute success. Um, Robbie, you want to come in there and Chabi? Yeah, I think you said earlier there that that um, he, he just a guy who has life in order, and you could see that even in his football career, he make it on the field and off it in terms of his decisions that he made. Like for example, if you look back at at, at most um, football careers, you see kind of um, decisions and and moves that maybe didn't make sense, even even for top footballers, you know, like you look at maybe Luis Suarez now, we don't know how this is going to end with him and Atletico, and kind of uh, like Zlatan had a couple of kind of weird years and uh, strange decisions. You look at Xavi Alonso's career, he was at Liverpool and, and timed his departures immaculately, like he, he was at Liverpool, stayed long enough to be a legend, win trophies, left, went to Real Madrid, a step up, uh, you would say, you, you you could say, S- stayed there long enough to become a legend, um, won trophies and left at perfect timing. Went to Bayern a step, definitely maybe not up, but definitely not down, a step sideways. We'll say, 
stayed there long enough to become a legend, won trophies and, and timed his re- retirement perfectly. And, and he makes it look effortless. Um, and, and, and obviously there is that cool factor where you, you just, you're just cool or you're not, you can't really teach it. But there is, it feels like there is a kind of a a, tall, a a very rational process that goes into his decisions. And I would say this, he's taught about this Borussia Mönchengladbach move and it's um, obviously it could go wrong. But I would say given the fact that the way his career went, it's a very well thought out rational decision. And he he feels like it's the right move. So I would be, I, I think he'd be kind of silly to bet against him making this a success. Absolutely. I think I was struck when looking at the trajectories of himself and Arteta's career. Um, and I was kind of struck by the fact that when Arteta was a young man, he went from San Sebastian almost directly to Barcelona, a very big step, whereas Xavi chose to stay uh, in San Sebastian with Real Sociedad uh, and develop more slowly. And obviously, you know, when you compare their playing careers, there's no comparison. Uh, Xavi is one of the best and most decorated playing careers of any footballer in living history. Um and I think his managerial career is almost the same in many ways because Mikel has gone into a massive job at Arsenal, as we, we know from speaking with Jasmine every week. You know, a very difficult job with a lot of things hung over from the past, you could say. Whereas Chabi is building a bit more slowly. He's learning his badges in the lower two levels away from the spotlight. Uh, and then coming into a Bruce Mushin Gladbach job that while it's not maybe to the same spotlight or same profile of an Arsenal job, but it's certainly a a big step up and a move in the right direction. Um, but John, as a Liverpool supporter, someone who would have followed Xavi very closely uh, uh, throughout his career, um, I know you're a admirer of him as a person as well. Like, who would you rather, this is kind of a weird question, but who would you rather succeed Klopp, Gerrard or Xavi? Oh, um, that's, that's interesting. I mean, Gerrard has done better than I ever thought he would at Rangers. I mean, again, there's no perfect science to this, but my impression of Gerard was that he would be too passionate and too invested emotionally to be a very good manager. But in fairness, he's proved me wrong. If you would ask me this 10 years ago, I would have said Carragher would have been a manager and then it transpired that he didn't and Gerard was. Um, as for Alonso, again, like you could end up with egg on your face with these things because it's so hard to know. But if you look at the managers he's worked under, the Benitez's, the Mourinho's, the Ancelotti's, the Guardiola's, the Vicente del Bosque's, like he's worked over some, worked under some of the best names in football in the last twenty or so years in terms of coaching. And then when you tie it together with his personality, because he seems very inquisitive, very intelligent. He learned English very quickly after after joining Liverpool. In fact, I think he even polished his English as a student in in Meath in Ireland. And then, as Jasmine said, he uh, he learned German very quickly. So he seems like a very intelligent guy who has his who has his life together, like you mentioned as well. So if you combine all those attributes and even look at how intelligent he was as a footballer, then you would assume that he would be an excellent coach. So I think over the next two or three years, depending on how they do, it could be either one of those two candidates. But uh, I think that the fact that Alonso is going to go to a top five league would probably be something that works in his favour. And let's, it remains to be seen how Gerard would do in those circumstances. We did a Patreon episode last week on Rangers and um, Gregor Chappelle, who's a big Rangers supporter, told me that the emotion thing is a big thing with Gerard because uh, when he was a player, obviously he was a highly emotional character, best emphasised in that infamous title run in 2014 when, uh, you know, the slip and the we will not let the slip and all that kind of thing. And similarly, in the old firm in his first season with Rangers, he was very, very emotional in that game and 
kind of almost overly so, you could say. Whereas what Gregor told me is that this season he's been ice cool, giving nothing away, showing no emotion. So I think maybe he's realised that you can't be so emotionally invested as a coach because it's kind of a dangerous um, tightrope to walk, you could say. Um, so, yeah, it'll be certainly interesting to see how those careers pan out, as well as Mikel Arteta, of course. Um, some three excellent midfield players who I think could be very interesting managers also. Um, but City followed that up with a 2-0 defeat of Everton at Goodison Park. Injury struck Everton, missing their first two goalkeepers, uh, their box-to-box midfielder, uh, their creative linchpin. Very, very much down to the bare bones, all the youth products on the bench. Uh, it was uh, I was actually covering Huesca Asasuna, so I couldn't watch it. But I was getting texts from my dad, and um, he was telling me, you know, how things are panning out. I was developing hope as the game went on because I was so downcast beforehand. But of course, in the final ten minutes, they struck twice and killed it off um, to progress. Uh, so they're on course for a quadruple this season. Um, they're facing Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League quarter final. Borussia Dortmund, who drew two two with Cologne. Um, Jasmine's favourite team uh, this past weekend in the Bundesliga. Uh, Jasmine, what do you make of City? I mean, they're obviously flying. Um, how will you think they'll do against Borussia Dortmund? Do you think that... My impression of Dortmund is that, you know, they're very, very reliant on Erling Haaland. And that was kind of maybe exhibited at the weekend when after the 2-2 game where Haaland kind of almost single-handedly uh, earned the point for Dortmund. He stormed off the pitch, throwing a shirt to the player who had asked for it. Visibly upset, um, reports in the Spanish media after the game hinted that he spoke to me Areola and kind of maybe increased a bit of urgency in terms of engineering a move away this summer as opposed to the you know much talked about move in the summer of 2022. So I guess it's kind of a multifaceted question, but you know, are Man City overwhelming famous for this game? And how significant do you think was Haaland's outburst? Um, I think Man City will be. Um, not as favourites, as far favourites as they were against München Gladbach. Um, Dortmund have, as we said, Erling Haaland's a world class striker. What will be a little bit worrying for Dortmund is that Jaden Sancho has an injury that might rule him out of the um, first leg might rule him out until mid-April. And this is the one of the annoying things about Dortmund. Every time you think they've turned a corner and they look fantastic. They follow it up against the middle-of-the-road team or relegation fodder, and they look a little bit not really exciting. Um, They rely on Erling Haaland and Jaden Sancho, who provides Erling Haaland um, so much that when other things don't go their way and maybe a team plays a lower block or let them have the ball, they seem to get stumped a little too easily. Uh, So I think what's good about Dortmund is that they're big game players. We've seen it against Sevilla. We've seen it against um, Bayern Munich. Actually, no, they. the thing is they've come out fast out of their blocks, apply high press pressure, and sometimes against big teams that can worry them. Um, if they play in the same way that Man United did against City the other week, then Dortmund have a chance. Um, that seems to be Man's, one of Man City's weakness. And it's also a bit what Man City did against Gladbach in a weird way. Uh, so, it, you know, it's, it, Man City are favourites, but it's not completely ruled out. Uh, that first leg will sh- should show us a lot of 
the characters of both teams and the it, yeah just how who's the bigger champion out of the both of them um compared to Erling Haaland's reaction I don't want to overplay it uh I think too much is made out of emotions when it comes to when you show them on the football pitch and it was a frustrating game for them they didn't create enough um there was chances squandered and you know the gap between Dortmund and fourth place Eintracht Frankfurt is now four points again where they should have won um and not dropped points so it was frustrating for Erling Haaland, who probably doesn't really want to leave Dortmund at the moment if they get Champions League football um, with a new manager next season. But my, I've said it several weeks before, I think if anyone can stump up the cash for him and he doesn't have Champions League football at Dortmund, I think he'll be looking to go. And I think that, despite me not wanting to overreact to his reaction... I think it's pretty much clear that he wants to be in a better team that will provide him with the top um, competitions next season. Real Madrid will be linked with three strikers um, this summer. Robbie, uh, Cristiano, of course, as mentioned earlier, Haaland and Kylian Mbappe. Um, Obviously, they're three very different strikers, different profiles, different stages in their careers, you could say. what do you think this transfer window holds for Real Madrid? Um, you know, given the last Galactico they signed or Eden Hazard has been such an unmitigated failure, um, how do you think they'll proceed? Do you think that they'll, you know, as John mentioned, go for Cristiano and kind of maybe use him as almost a stopgap until next summer when things are a bit more liquid and they can gun for either Haaland or Mbappe? Or do you think they're going to pull out the stops and go for one of the other two uh, young strikers uh, this window? Oh, I, th- I think that's a really difficult question. I think any talk now of transfer market signings and stuff is 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 way too premature. Like like any year, but especially this year, um, which we don't know how the how the coronavirus has affected um finances and what teams are are planning on doing, um, and what kind of money they have to spend. They'll probably have to uh, tighten purse strings for a couple of years to kind of uh, take the hit from this, from the lack of fans and the match day revenue and, and, and stuff like that. Um, I think the Ronaldo one, I mean, I've heard that and I, I don't, I, I, like, I mean, when you, you you understand this, Alan, and I guess you too, Jasmine and John, like, um, when you're working in sports journalism and, and you're watching the transfer signings every single day, it just... I mean, Haaland could score a hat-trick and next thing he's a bit next big thing. Real Madrid are all over him. Then it's Mbappe and, 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 and the Spanish media in particular, kind of, they talk as if Mbappe has already signed. They talk about him as if he's, he's a Real Madrid player. And I think, I think the Ronaldo signing, uh, or sorry, the potential Ronaldo signing would be one of the most uninventive um, signings in the history of football. He... I think I think it would his legacy is a little bit strange at Madrid anyway, but it would completely ruin his legacy. It would it would I would imagine it would it would mean they'd have to move Eden Hazard because they're not going to sign Ronaldo and Hazard to play in the same position. I mean, what what does Hazard's uh, transfer value look like at the moment? A thirty year old, chronically injured player who 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 doesn't necessarily. Um, 
like to work all that hard on his craft. I mean, that, that's one of the, uh, that's kind of a separate issue, but like his injuries uh, um, this season have probably set him back to the point where I don't know how much you'd be getting for him. So, so I mean, you're, you're going to try and sell Hazard to fund a Ronaldo move to kind of relive the glory years. I think it would be so uninventive. I think Mbappe is the main one. Um, Barcelona have been linked with Haaland as well recently. I think, um, honestly, his March now, I, I, I don't think any club has the kind of funds to be, to be making. Like Mbappe, surely... Given his age, given how electric he is, given the potential for uh, marketing and, and things like that, two hundred—we're looking at about one hundred and fifty, two hundred million. Does anyone have that kind of money to spend on a player, especially Real Madrid after after the unmitigated disaster that um, Hazard has been? They've got Vinicius in that position. Uh, I mean, I, I, I really don't know, and I don't know, I don't even know what they want. I mean, there was talk of Zidane kind of maybe staying for an extra year, but I think he's probably going to leave in the summer too if I was to kind of have to put my money on it. Um, so they don't, you don't know what kind of a team they're trying to go to build around, if they're going to need wingers, if they're going to use wingbacks. Um, so I think any talk of kind of signings at the moment is premature, and it's just kind of the flavour of the month. Whoever's playing well will be linked, but... At the end of the day, we have absolutely no idea because uh, PSG don't have to sell. Uh, Alland will have plenty of suitors, and Ronaldo, I just think, is so uninventive that it would be silly to, to, to pursue that. Yeah, there's definitely a bit of a drunk texting your ex at 3 a.m. vibe off the Ronaldo rumors, I think. Um, John, uh, I know a man close to your heart is Jose Mourinho, and uh, he had an eventful week, you could say, losing 3 0 to Denmark Zagreb. Um, whose manager was in prison, remarkably, and the Europa League to crash out after winning the first leg, and then beating Villa 2-0 um, in the Premier League at the weekend. Uh, I know you had some thoughts on uh, Mourinho's performance this past week and during his Spurs tenure in general. Yeah, I think he's his Spurs tenure has been hampered by uh, by a mad conservatism. It's really been, uh, he's made a rod for his own back so often by not trying to expand on leads, but sitting back, maybe in a similar way to David Moyes in the uh, Arsenal-West Ham match, which I'm sure we'll touch on. Um, in this in this Zagreb game, I mean, they were absolutely abject. But I guess, though, the narrative is always, when it's an English club, it's focused on their failings and what they did wrong. And, yeah, it makes sense because Spurs are a bigger club with more expensively assembled squad and what you would call probably a superstar coach, but I thought the home team were absolutely excellent. Uh, Orsic scoring a hat-trick. Uh, he was superb. 27-year-old, uh, like Robbie said, it's a flavour of the month, so I expect to see him linked to some some English Premier League club in a not-so-distant future based off that. Um, but I thought Spurs were were very meek in, in how they approached that game. And, you know... Uh, <laughs> It, it, I, it was kind of, I wouldn't say it was predictable, but when you thought that they had such a big lead established from the first leg, a 2 0 lead, that, that, you know, they would probably just sit on it. And uh, that's how it transpired. And fair play to Zagreb for managing to turn that around. Um, as for the Villa game, I guess Villa without without Grealish is how I saw Jonathan Fadugba tweet is like chicken without seasoning. Uh, uh, that's very true. Uh, Spurs uh, established a lead, and you were kind of because. They're the third worst team for holding on to leads in the Premier League. They went 1-0 up and you thought, okay, let's see what they do from here. But uh, it transpired that they added a second from a penalty that Harry Kane, let's face it, dived from. Um, I think a lot of the English media are really 
really reluctant to call him out on it. I've seen it described as cute, and I've seen it described as as, as other object is, and they, they've tried to avoid the word dive. But uh, I think he died for that penalty. But uh, it was a it was a fully deserved win for Spurs in that instance. And I think Villa is starting to kind of regress to the mean now. They've had an excellent start to the season, but they're kind of falling back now into where more you expect them to be. And that's definitely exasperated by Grealish's ac- absence. Because really, when you look at their when you look at their squad, along with probably Ezri Kansa, I think he's comfortably their best player. Another man who's comfortably someone's best player is Lionel Messi at Barcelona. Um, you know, great week for Barcelona, Robbie. They beat Huesca 4-1 on Monday evening and then followed up with a 6-1 dem- demolition of La Real at Anueta last night. Um, but just before we speak about Barcelona and Lionel Messi, I want to ask you about Huesca. Um, like they took a 4-1 beating against Barcelona. No shame in that, you could say, in Catalonia especially. And followed up with a nil-nil draw with Asasuna. Um, they're a funny team, Huesca, in that they're kind of Although the rock bottom of La Liga, they're playing good football. And I want to ask you about what you think of um, their prospects of staying up, because it is very tight in La Liga at the moment, even though I do think they'll go down. Um, and also the ability of Javi Galan, uh, their left back, who you wrote an excellent piece on uh, last week. Yeah, like you said there, I mean, they've been overperforming their, um, their, their current position in the table. And I think they've been really, really unlucky. We saw that with uh, Michel, who, who was, uh, who brought them up from the Segunda last year and, um, kind of dedicated to really, a really nice style of football, but also make them a little bit kind of feeble at the back. Um, and, 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 Huesca, I don't know this, but it felt like the directors at Huesca kind of they were holding out for Michel to kind of turn the corner with them and and, and get a streak of good luck, but it just never arrived, and they had to make the move in an effort to save their uh, Primera status. Brought in Pacheta, and he's he's gone to uh, three at the back with three, kind of uh, Javi Galan and Pablo Maffeo playing as wing backs, trying to kind of. Build. I don't know if he's trying to build a team around Rafa Mir or if it just happens to be a consequence of the style that he's playing. But um, yeah, Javi Galan was good under Michel, but he's even kicked on another gear now um, uh, under Pacheta. And he's um, just an excellent wing-back. And I think when you look at... I suppose when you're talking about transfers, the and, and anything can happen, but you're kind of looking at... The, the teams that he could potentially go to that seem like nice fits um, and, and whether or not they're going to need um, people in his position. So you look at, like let's say, Atletico Madrid, um, Renan Lodi, uh, they, they play like, and we don't know if Simeone is going to continue to play that, but they're playing like a left wing back now uh, and Yannick Carrasco has no replacement. Javi Galan would fit perfectly in there. He's better than, I would say, Renan Lodi. Uh, and then you look at Barcelona, Junior Firpo has been a, a, a failure there as, as far as his progress has gone. Jordi Alba's not getting younger. Koeman's playing a 3-5-2 now. And uh, Javi Galan would slot in there perfectly as a backup. And his release clause then is 8 million, which is very manageable for any of those clubs. Likewise, uh, Sevilla and Real Betis have been linked. Um, yeah, I just think he's a really, he's a fine footballer. And, and, and part of the kind of, I mean, this is what makes scouting and analysis and all that difficult. How will a player uh, uh, adapt to a new environment, and and is he as good as his um as he he looks in a certain side, or or are the circumstances and the, is the context just perfect for him at Wesca? But I think he'd be a fine addition to any of the 
maybe not, not not all of the top six, but definitely three or four or five teams in the in the top kind of six to eight bracket in La Liga. So um yeah, strange club or strange team at the moment and um they they are committed to that playing that kind of attacking football and uh, might just be their undoing in the end, I'd say. Certainly smells like a Manchi sending to me, doesn't it? Uh, eight million release clause and all that. Um but just on Messi himself like I was really struck last night. I mean, I know since the turn of the new year, really, they've been flying Barcelona. They're the fourth team in La Liga, uh, as you mentioned. They're undoubtedly the best team in La Liga at the moment. I think um, with the highest ceiling. Um, like my perspective on it was that Messi looks completely re-energized and looks to be really enjoying his football and looks to really be enjoying working with Pedri, working with you know Elish Mariba, working with Anzu Fati, who's been injured for most of the season but is still. Uh, very much part of this future, future of this team. Um, working with Frankie De Jong, you know, Ronald Arahu, Oscar Mingueza, you know, his Jordi Alba and Sergio Busquets are enjoying a bit of a mini renaissance, you could say. Um, like the team are really in a good, a good run. Um, like I think at this point, from my perspective, it looks almost more likely that he'll stay than go. And I think as a football fan, I really love to see him lead Barcelona to another Champions League title. I think it would be his Maradona moment almost, you know, the one title that's undoubtedly his if 2015 was MSN's and 2009 and 2011 was Guardiola's. I think if he could pull this team um, by their, by the, you know, the scuff of their necks to a Champions League title in the next two to three years, I think it would be a remarkable achievement. Um how good do you think Barcelona are at the moment? And do you think that they're now the favourites for La Liga, Robbie? I don't know about favourites for La Liga. There's still four points behind. I mean, Atletico are going to have to probably win every game, I'd say. <laughs> Barcelona look really good. Um, in terms of Messi staying, like he, he, yeah, he looks, he looks um, like he's turned a corner or kind of has forgotten about a lot of this kind of baggage that kind of haunted them for the beginning of the year. Um, it's kind of a difficult one because it, in one in one aspect you're talking about the best footballer that has ever played the game. Like I mean, and I don't I think I think that's uh, yeah obviously it's arguable, but that's that's my perspective. But on the other hand, then like he is, you, you can't deny that he has slowed down a little bit. I mean, just. And I know it's only kind of small things, but physically he doesn't kind of drift by or, or, or uh, glide by players as much as he does. Uh, not as um, it doesn't come as not as easy to him as it once did, which is completely natural given his age. But and and, and this is why I think um, he is probably looking around, thinking to himself what's my best option here to win a trophy um, or win win the Champions League one last time. Uh, eight months ago, ten months ago, it wasn't Barcelona. Absolutely not, because they were a shambles on the field and off it. Um, they didn't know what they were doing. There was, uh, uh, I mean, they were... It, it, Messi looked visibly frustrated. He was he was kind of detached from the whole thing. Now, you look at you look at Barcelona, and, and you look at Barcelona, and you, you... Like, I was just looking at them last night, and you look at the, the youth... In, in that team, like Serginho Dest is a fabulous footballer. Frankie de Jong is absolutely magnificent this season. He's so underrated, I think. I've been watching him lately and I'm just looking at the way he moves and the way he kind of creates space for Messi. 
relentless in his um in, in with his energy on the field and just drags teams all over the place uh so hard to mark and um, you you look then at Pedri who is just unbelievable footballer underrated as well uh I could go on here with with the, with the with the kind of youth coming through and when you say uh Messi grabbing uh, pulling this team to a Champions League and and kind of truth um uh, against the odds I think it would be Messi. Messi kind of maybe knows he's slowing down a little bit, so he's probably thinking, "Okay, I need to be around these kind of this, this young team, and I'll uh, kind of add the finishing touches to it." But it's going to be De Jong and Dest and, and the rest who who actually uh, make us contenders for the Champions League. And then he's probably thinking, "I can, I can be the guy to make the difference." Then when it matters, I he can't. Lionel Messi can no longer single-handedly win you a Champions League like uh, he 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 can't be that decisive factor for or sorry he can't be that um kind of he can be the game-winning player what I'm trying to say is that he 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 can't do it all on his own he needs a team around him and he can add the finishing touches he can be the decisive factor in a final and I think he's probably looking around going if he moves to like there's only when you when you when you narrow down the options, Man City, PSG, maybe Juventus. Okay, Man City, he could he could definitely be that guy uh, for Man City. But does he want to move to uh, to England this stage of his career, kind of readapt to the physical aspect of the Premier League and, and a new a new environment? Uh, PSG, he, they're going to probably have to sell Mbappe in order to to fund the, or not to fund, but to to fit Messi into that team. Uh, he's probably looking at it thinking. Eight months ago, Barcelona wasn't my best option to win one more Champions League. It prolonged my career for a couple of years. Right now, Barcelona probably is the 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 the, the right option for him, and that's why you might think he would stay. But again, that could change if they don't win a trophy this year. For example, if Koeman leaves, if um, Laporta doesn't doesn't kind of do what he has said about or letting letting Koeman stay until 2022 if they bring in someone that maybe doesn't kind of um, build a team around Messi. We, we, we don't know any of these things. So right now, yeah, absolutely. It looks like Messi is probably his best decision to stay at Barcelona, but that could all change in a month or six weeks if they don't win a trophy this season. Good week for Bayern Munich, Jasmine. Uh, they beat Lazio 2-1 in the Champions League to confirm their place uh, in the quarterfinals where they'll play Paris Saint-Germain. Very much kind of almost at half speed, they beat Lazio uh, in Bavaria. And then also beat Stuttgart 4 0 at the weekend. Uh, Joshua Kimmich coming in for a lot of plaudits, I think. Uh, and also, of course, Robert Lewandowski, who's continuing his sensational form and really kind of chasing down Gerd Miller's record for goals in a Bundesliga season. Um, what kind of shape are Bayern in, do you think, Jasmine, uh, coming into this back end of the season? They're in a really good shape. Um, there was a little bit of worry about injuries and you know, it keeps on cropping up as slight injuries for them. Uh, but they've managed to get over the really kind of tough bits, most congested bit, and it probably worked in their favour that they're still not in the DFB Pokal um, because they really can now just start to concentrate on um, the game against PSG in the Champions League, which is going to be a terrific match. Um and I, I think most people, especially with viewing on how PSG are playing at the moment, it's a little bit more inconsistent than by Munich has been um, recently. But uh, 
one of the fantastic things is um, Bayern Munich's how they kind of occupy space. They went down to 10 men, and after they went down to 10 men, they scored four goals in one half of football to win 4-0 against Stuttgart. Um, It was probably the most bizarre thing I have ever seen. Six minutes after Alfonso Davies was rightly sent off for quite a nasty late tackle, uh, it was... Uh, hold on, I'm trying to do maths in my head. And um, five minutes, three goals. Uh, six minutes after that red card, and another Lewandowski uh, hat trick. So he's only five goals in. How many games have we got? Eight. Uh, five goals in eight games left to beat Gerd Miller's record, which is insane. Um, I've been looking at some of his stats at the moment, and. He, He's crazy. We talk about like Ibrahimovic being in his late 30s and being so fit um, on the pitch. But his Lewandowski, who is nearly 33, um, in the form of his life, and again, as fit, it, it is honestly a crazy thing. If you just look at his um, stats, uh, his... In all competitions, he in the last uh, year he's scoring one point two nine goals per ninety. If you focus on just the Bundesliga, he's scoring one point five goals per ninety. Um, his xG in the Bundesliga is one point zero four, so he's actually creating a goal a game and scoring just above that. Uh, so it it is it's it's really crazy. Um, and the good thing is that they have kind of so, sorted out their structure when it comes to defensively. I mean, maybe it was just because it was Stuttgart, who are a promoted team at the end of the day. Uh, they've still conceded thirty five goals in twenty six games in the Bundesliga, but. If you're just going to do this crazy late 90s Newcastle way of outscoring everyone with your best, with the best player in the world, then I, I they are honestly, they're just scary. I, I do fear, I, I feel like, I don't know if I would put them as favourites in the Champions League is the only thing, um, just because of the defensive dominance structures that you've got from Man City and Chelsea at the moment uh, I would probably say the second best to Man City but it's just some of their play is absolutely and players Lewandowski Gnabry Sane's seem seem to find a new lease of life and, and Thomas Muller is the perfect provider of Lewandowski who's also in his early 30s um, seeing what these guys can do is honestly frightening and you should uh, write them off at your own peril. Uh, Joachim Love, uh, who's currently taking Spanish classes in preparation for life post-Germany, uh, um, tipped Hansi Flick for the national team job uh, this week, saying that he's the, the perfect candidate. That would be a good move for him. And how do you think Bayern would respond to that? Who do you think they bring in instead? Would it be Nagelsmann? I would say so. I, I There's some talk about Nagelsmann not really having the experience managing like world-class players, but everyone needs a starting point. Um, 
And I really think Flick isn't the type of manager to do a Pep Guardiola, to travel, to come out of Germany, go to another club, Premier League, whatever. He Because if he wanted to do that, I think he would have done it by now. And he's won everything. So I think being the kind of assistant manager and the German coach, and if Germany national team wants him, I think that would be the place he would go. Um, Yeah, but I see that kicking off the roundabout of German um, managers. You would think Hansi Flick goes German national team, like uh, Nagelsmann probably goes to Bayern. The Ralph Ragnick is still bigging himself up in every job, apart from the Schalke one, uh, <laughs> which happened this week too. Um, so yeah, I would say that's probably the perfect way. But as we've seen today with this announcement of Xavi Alonso going to Gladbach, I don't know what German uh, sporting directors have on their sleeves anymore. <laughs> it's honestly been such a tiring few months in German football. It's really quite a... You could say a love letter to Kylian Mbappe last night, Jasmine. Um, PSG had a good week. They beat Dale 3 0 in the cup, followed up with a 4 2 defeat of Leon, uh, in Leon last night. Um, why are your thoughts on Mbappe? You said you couldn't put it into words last night, but I think you've had time to think about it now. When we talk about um, world class players, and I've, I've been, uh, this might be a bit controversial. I see Holland as a world-class striker, but not a world-class player. And I think Mbappe is more of the world-class player. I mean, he's won the World Cup already uh, and gotten into the Champions League final at his ripe old age, um, making me feel very, very old. But it's in watching him play against Lyon last night... Um, was the real like highlight of the weekend he scored two it wasn't a completely exciting game it was quite even but it's just the way he also creates chances his movement on the pitch he plays as someone who's hitting their peak as their 29 or like Lewandowski but he covers so much more space um a bit more than er Erling Haaland, he comes in through the left. Um, he, he made a really good chance for Moise Keane. That Moise Keane really should have um, finished and put them 1-0 up earlier in the game. And it's, I think it's just the maturity of how he plays. He slightly betters Haaland's stats in terms of XG and goals um, in a harder league. And doesn't look so much of a Terminator, but no, that doesn't actually matter. But it's, I, I mean, I don't want to go into this Mbappe versus Holland discussion because to me, they're two different players and I hate comparing players anyway. Um, but he is just such a joy to watch from my personal level of consuming football that it's just, Wherever he may end up, I just hope he brings that same kind of enthusiasm that he does through his play to any club that he ends up in. Ken Early on the second captain's podcast, a couple of weeks ago, was talking about the two of them and he said that 
if you look at Haaland's statistics, aside from the goal score, which is the most important one, obviously, like all his like metrics are actually like not very good compared to other strikers, like in, in terms of his contribution to general play. It's just his his goal scoring ability is like freakish, and this kind of fits into this kind of almost phenomenon like status that he holds in the game. Just the way he plays is unlike anyone has ever played the game before. I think, in, in my experience at least. He's a very, very unusual player, is Erling Haaland. Like, and I agree with you. I think that in terms of contributing to general play, uh, Mbappe is a more all-round footballer. Um, but like Haaland is like, you know, like a giant toddler who doesn't know his strength, basically. <laughs> I love that line of going. I, I think a good thing as well is Mbappe is more of that can create something out of nothing, whereas Holland needs a kind of provider for him that he has in Dortmund with Jaden Sancho. Um, it, it, Mbappe's just again, it, his play is mature. He can do things that Messi can do in terms of changing a game. Where I don't think Erling Holland's there quite yet, or maybe not that type of player. Not to say he isn't fantastic, because we have all seen that he is. But it's a different kind of player that we see from Mbappe, which I enjoy so much. John, um, Manchester United beat Milan 1-0 in the Europa League during the week and then followed up with a 3-1 defeat at the hands of Leicester City in the FA Cup. Once again, um, all his chances of winning a trophy are maybe slightly diminished this season, um, unless they can pull off a Europa League uh, victory. Um, what are your take in these two games two very different games from um, the Red Devils yeah the first game away to Milan was kind of nip and tuck it kind of took a very good Dean Henderson save from Zlatan who came on as a substitute to uh, to win United to tie obviously uh, Pogba scored a, scored a brilliant goal and he's been he's really since coming back from injury I think he, he's been a, a real source of uh, upward momentum for United in games um, when I looked at that Milan team, though, I thought there was a real lack of goals. Uh, they really miss Rafael Liao, maybe to a lesser extent, Mario Mandzukic. And obviously, uh, Zlatan was on the bench. And another thing they were very devoid of, barring Samu Casalejo, was pace. So I kind of thought to myself that United might have more of a chance because I had assumed that Zlatan would be fit for the second leg to start, but he wasn't. And he came on and he tried his best, but uh, it wasn't to be. And they progressed and they played Granada. In the, in the next round and uh, Granada are having an excellent season so I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion that United will win that despite the fact that their squad is much more expensively assembled and it's a, it's a, it's a club with much more tradition and history after the Leicester game yeah. I thought that I thought Leicester were, were absolutely superb and what where they really showed up United in the area was midfield um, despite the fact that they played a back three so it was two it was two Leicester midfielders against a Man United diamond, so it was two against four. But Tielemans and Indeedy absolutely, absolutely ran riot through, through United's midfield. United looked very porous through the middle, and you'd really think if they had someone like an Indeedy, a real, you know, natural number six defensive midfield shields, that they would be much better as a team. Because so often either Ianacho, Aozi Perez, or Jamie Vardy would kind of drop deep between the lines and they would get the ball to feet in oceans of space between United's back line and between United's midfield. So Leicester looked far more organised and they uh, they eked out a well-deserved 3-1 victory with uh, Iheanacho scoring twice and he's really been resurgent in form in the last few months. I remember when he came through at Man City, I thought that he would be 
like a Daniel Sturridge because he has this lovely language, relaxed style. He hits a football when he gets very little backlift. And, you know, when he smashes it, it doesn't look like he's, you know, it doesn't look like he's smashed it. He has a really smooth, velvety kind of style of play. But after kind of an initial uh, good season under Manuel Pellegrini at City, he seemed to regress a bit. And that lasted all the way up until uh, this season. But in recent weeks, he's really hit his straps and he's been, he's been superb. And uh, I know that Vardy is in, a, is in a goal drought. I think he's only scored one in his last 15, but his all-around play, I think I mentioned in the last pod, uh, has been superb. And he, he missed a couple of good chances against United, which really made it a, really made it a, a, a bigger scoreline for Leicester. So uh, it does put massive pressure on Solskjaer, I think, to win the Europa League. But just, I think, the real story here was just quite how good Leicester was, and especially Tielemans and Ndidi. Yeah, I think that, um, I think it was match day two weeks ago, Shearer, Lineker and Wright in the studio, I think. And they were kind of waxing lyrical about Ian Acho. Very much, I think he's a striker-striker, if that makes sense, the way he plays the game, which is always a good sign, because if you're a striker-striker, then generally there'll come a point in your career where you begin to really bang in the goals and he's starting to do that now. And I think his personality, he seems to be quite a likeable guy as well. I don't know, he seems to be quite kind of grounded and focused um, off the pitch as well as on it. Um, and yeah, I think Manchester United, I think Bruno Fernandes is looking a bit jaded at the moment. Um, and I think that when he's jaded, not maybe at the level he normally is, I think they suffer greatly as a result. Um, Another good week for Chelsea. Uh, they beat Atletico 2-0, which we'll discuss shortly. But first, I want to ask you about the 2-0 defeat of Sheffield United and just, John, Chelsea in general this season. Like, I mean, Thomas Tuchel is really transforming them, hasn't he? He's turned into this team which aren't giving anything away and are just full of beans. Like, you know, what do you make of them and how do you feel uh, they'll cope against Porto in the Champions League quarterfinal? I think they're very much the dark horses for this competition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really highlights how bad a job Frank Lampard done there with what they have. They, it's a familiar hobby horse of ours to kind of dunk on Frank Lampard, but uh, uh, they, have a, they have a superb squad. And I think really when you look at it, they have a squad that's absolutely built for a back three system. I mean, I think that Antonio Rudiger is far better, for example, in a back three than he is in a back two. I think... Cesar Azpilicueta has a nice little niche that we saw under Conte of being excellent as being part of a back three, probably more so than he is of being a fullback in a traditional back four. Right now, um, I think Marcus Alonso is a much better wing back than he is a fullback. So I think I think Tuchel deserves credit for really making a system that suits his players. And we've also seen you know the likes of Callum Hudson-Odoi, who who previously hadn't played wing back, look very comfortable in that position. Uh, N'Golo Kante, I think, looks better as part of a midfield too. So he's really hit the sweet spot in terms of their approach. And, you know, they were comfortable in this Sheffield United game, I think, unsurprisingly. Um, they've got a difficult draw in the semis against Man City. It's the, it feels like the first time in a long time that Manchester City have had maybe a difficult draw in the FA Cup after generally getting, apart from Everton, obviously, in the quarterfinals. They generally seem to get lower league opposition all the way in the domestic cups. So uh, this will be their toughest draw for a long time. Um, as for the Porto game, I think this could be quite difficult because Porto are very stodgy, very obstinate, uh, typified by Pepe. He was absolutely brilliant in the in the Juventus second leg. Uh, they defend deep in a low block 4-4-2. They look very organised. Everybody knows their role within the function of the team. So... I think Chelsea are, are clear favourites. And like you mentioned, probably dark horses for the European Cup. But uh, 
I don't think it's going to be a case that they're going to absolutely blow Porto out of the water. Uh, I envision them having all of the ball and probably, you know, the better opportunities and chances. But uh, this Porto team will be stodgy. I don't think there will be a whole lot in it. I don't really don't see them blowing them out of the water just because of how well organized Porto were. But uh, I, I can certainly see them winning it. And uh, you saw Pulisic played very well for Chelsea against Sheffield United. And that's just indicative of the depth that they have in their squad. I mean, the likes of him are probably a regular enough starters and even Olivier Giroud, but they can come in and they can make they can make big contributions in, in high-stake in high games. So just because of really how well Tuchel has done and because of the momentum they have behind them and really the camp seems happy, and the depth of their squad, I think they'll definitely get top four in the Premier League. And like you mentioned, yeah, they're they're a good outside, they're a good outside chance for the Champions League because you know it, all it takes is four to five kind of positive enough results, and all of a sudden you can win yourself a European Cup at this stage. And I think they've been a squad that's been lesser afflicted by injuries than others this season, and they have the capacity to rotate and to keep freshness in the in the later games of the season when other clubs won't. So, yeah, definitely, definitely want to keep an eye on in context of winning the European Cup. Not a great week for Atletico, though, Robbie. Um, losing 2-0 to Chelsea, of course, coming in for a bit of a beating from maybe the foreign media after the game. Um, followed up with a good 1-0 victory of Alaves yesterday, um, but it was certainly um, a tight one. Um, for me, it was kind of almost a good symbol for their season because you had, um, you know, Jan Oblak saving that penalty. Uh, laid on four minutes from time uh, to preserve their lead, which is crucial going into this kind of business end of the season. And then you had Serge, uh, Luis Suarez, the under the pitch, uh, scoring the goal um, that put them in the lead. So I think, you know, for me, this athletic team are defined by what they do in both boxes in terms of Jan Oblak in one and Luis Suarez in the other, as well as maybe Marcus Llorente too, to a slightly lesser degree. Um, but what was your reaction to the Chelsea game? And do you think that they did well to respond and beat a tricky side in Alaves at the weekend. Um, I know Cholo Simeone was kind of saying after the Chelsea game, you know, I'm not looking at any excuses, you know, this is on me, this is, on, this is my fault, I need to grow, I need to, you know, improve, not the players. The players are doing exactly what I asked them to do and they're showing up every day with, you know, the same hunger and ambition that they always do. Um, so for you, Robbie, what do you think about Delico at the moment? How do you feel about them post-Chelsea, post-Alaves, coming into this back end of the season? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I think what John was saying there about Tuchel and Chelsea, I, I haven't been as impressed by a team in, in, in a long time, uh, definitely this season. There were just, it felt like there was about 12 or 13 players. They were everywhere and I was just, they were, uh, they were out coached. The tactics were better and um, more energy, intensity. Uh, they were just, um, Phenomenal! It was a it was a really incredible performance, and kind of the one thing that Atletico bring to the party or tend to kind of be able to out um out outdo other teams with is their intensity and their their energy. But Chelsea just blew them out of water; like they couldn't compete with them. And um, I think, yeah, I mean, I've thought a lot about this one on Simeone, and 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 like it's it's kind of frustrating in in some ways in that. Um, it's kind of like when you talk about Messi or when you talk about but about, about um someone like that, you you, you almost can't criticize him because you have to kind of caveat or you have to kind of uh, say beforehand, look, I'm I'm not criticizing uh, his 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 overall work because at the end of the day, Diego Simeone is a legend at Atletico Madrid. He has turned him into a European um 
contender uh, he's brought a consistency to them that that the club can build around and they can plan around um, and and brought them to a couple of uh, Champions League finals won La Liga uh, the, the, and won other trophies too a couple of Reyes and, and uh, Europa Leagues but the the um, I will say like it gets to the point where um like volatility is is the essence of football fandom like i mean you you need that little bit of volatility you need to kind of you need those highs and lows to kind of and and the problem is for atletico consistency is fine but to what end i mean they're they're every single year now for the last three years they've been knocked out of the champions league fairly easily by by teams that didn't go on to compete so they've beaten by juventus in what was a fairly embarrassing display in Turin, Ronaldo scoring a hat trick, they were knocked out last year by Leipzig, uh, who 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 didn't really um, who weren't really favourites to win it, and this year Chelsea uh, they've been embarrassed, and I think the problem, or I find some of the problem with not, not a problem, and I don't think he does this intentionally, but if you listen to Simeone on the on uh, in press conferences after he's the kind of guy who just commands respect a little bit maybe like Xabi Alonso he just he's it's like it's almost effortless he just that's the way he is and it's accepted that he is the commander and by it's a little bit weird because you watch other coaches you watch Pep Guardiola you watch Mourinho you watch Klopp and you can get underneath their skin they get frustrated. They get um, they get uh, annoyed by questions. Simeone never does. It's actually disarming. You listen to him, and he, everything. Look, we're not looking for excuses. And the, and the journalists are left there going, "Well, okay, okay, so, okay, we'll just accept that." They, you know, there's no, there's no uh, kind of what, what would you call it defiance there. He just accepts it. Says, "Look." And he, he never gets annoyed by questions. It's almost, and I don't know if he does this on purpose. I think it's just his manner, and he, he's really good at it. It's a way of kind of shielding him away from criticism because every single uh, collapse or defeat or embarrassing uh, loss, he turns around and says, we're not looking for excuses. This is who we are. And he almost kind of reframes the whole debate, and he says, we're underdogs anyway. What would you what like you know? And it, and it's kind of a weird thing that I've kind of noticed recently. And I'll watch him. I'd be uh, uh, like when I used to go to games. I used to go into the press conference thinking, "Oh, here we go. They're after losing to someone. Uh, there's going to be a bit of kind of you kind of sense. Um, there's going to be something said and people asking questions. You go into a press conference and he just disarms you because he nearly agrees with you. Yeah, yeah. Look, we just need to get better. And then you're left kind of oh, okay. Well, he he admits that. They're not looking for, you know, there's no, there's no drama. There's no, and it's kind of weird. So, uh, yeah, like I've been thinking a lot about that and about Simeone and the way he kind of fra- reframes uh, situations. And, 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 and I was kind of like the, the, the greatest trick the devil ever uh, uh, pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. The greatest trick Simeone has ever pulled was convincing the world that Atletico aren't contenders because at the end of every defeat, it's a case of, look, we go back to the drawing board. This is who we are. We're a we're a we're a humble, uh, kind of team that just works hard. And this is who we are. No, like you, you have to demand more, and and you get consistency, and you can build around that in the transfer market. But at what point do you kind of try to actually compete for these trophies? Do you know what I mean? 
so it's it's kind of a tough one as for where Atletico go because you can't also criticize him because he has brought that consistency and um yeah, tough week for Atletico and, and, and Atletico fans, but um, it's uh, it's interesting to see what they do in the summer. If they lose La Liga, I, I said about three or four months ago that Atletico were going to have an interesting summer. They were either going to be looking for a new coach or they were going to be celebrating a La Liga title trophy, uh, a title win. So either Atletico win this or else Atletico seriously have to consider uh, where they're actually going, what their ambition is. Do they want to be consistent or do they want to cons- or do they want to consistently compete for trophies because in reality in the last three or four years they haven't and it's as simple as that it's an interesting philosophical question i think because you know like standards are raised in football so say in the case of atletico as you mentioned like simeone has come in and over the last decade single-handedly raised the standards of the club and raised the expectation levels and like human beings are built to become accustomed to things do you know so they get used to their status their situation and they want to press on and you're right Simeone's kind of partido or partido man in black philosophy is kind of counter to this kind of you know shift to becoming you know really neck and neck with the big two you could say so it's an interesting one to try and balance I think Spurs are maybe a good example of someone who maybe took Pochettino for granted, got rid of him, Berlin Mourinho, in search of that higher status and it hasn't worked out for them uh, so far. But uh, but yeah, Robbie, what do you think about that? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting that we're talking about Tuchel and, and, and like, um, uh, the, the, the kind of discussions around um, around manage, managers because of all, we, we still don't really know what managers, what effect managers have on teams. Like, are they just kind of... And this is a really philosophical question. Are they just kind of holding it all together? Like you look at the likes of, or, or, or with the rise in data analytics, are we moving towards a more kind of a technical, uh, scientific, techn- uh, technological approach? Like, uh, not technological, but like you look at the likes of Tuchel, just absolutely um, the precision in the way he discusses things and brings ideas in from other places, and then you get the likes of like a Zinedine Zidane, and and he's been he's been called a clap your hands and kind of cheer 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 the team on manager, and 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 uh, like he he said uh, like I was just reading Michael Cox's zonal marking book, and he's and in that there's a quote. Zidane said, "I'm not a leader of men. I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm never going to be a leader of men." And this was during his playing career. He was like, "I, I don't want to be a, a leader. I don't want to be uh, someone who, who leads a team and be the guy like." And then he goes and becomes a manager. And and then like say for example, you get to like Xavi Alonso, who's just so cerebral in the way he thinks about the game and the way he just um uh. uh analyzes it you get the likes of Tuchel you get the likes of um who, who are we talking about here like uh some of these kind of data data analytically driven guys and then and then you wonder like uh what what like and then you look at like Real Madrid are built around superstars okay so the money dries up and we don't they don't have the money to buy superstars anymore they're gonna have to get more Savvy, like uh, there's a good example. Uh, Lester, like I watched a little bit of Lester this season, and 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 their their signings are just absolutely unbelievable. And if you look at their data analytics um, department, it's fairly significant. Some of the players that they bought, unknown. This that Wesley Fofana guy, he's absolutely incredible. Uh, and and they've got like a 
uh, about five or six of those players who nobody had a clue who they were and they're just you can see by them they're 20, 21 years of age and they've got massive futures in front of them um, and then you look at the likes of Real Madrid or, or, or I don't mean to pick out Real Madrid but look at Man United or, or someone like that maybe even like a Bayern who, who, who might fall into that category they're just relying on, on buying world class players and now we're going through a, a period where there isn't as much money to buy those superstars so how do we reinvent or how do we kind of uh, improve our side? Uh, because we're going to have to kind of rebuild without any money, and we don't really know how to do it. Uh, you know what I mean? From a uh, from a, a, tact, a, a data and literally, I keep saying that, but data literally driven scouting approach, we don't really know how to buy. Um, uh, players from other uh, younger players from other leagues on the cheap. I mean, you would wonder what direction like European football is going in, and how these super clubs are going to uh, readapt to the to the rise in analytics and, and and the way that teams are scouting and and um, rebuilding their squads. Absolutely, it's worth almost a special of its own, isn't it? Very interesting topic um, with lots of significance for the future. But uh, bringing it back to the present day, um, very Arsenal week, I think, uh, Jasmine. Um, probably peak Arsenal you could say <laughs> <laughs> losing one to Olympiacos and then coming back from 3-0 down to beat West Ham uh, to draw with West Ham United 3-0 um, what do you make this week and I was kind of wondering maybe like do you think that Arteta's kind of you know disciplining of uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang uh, last weekend um, before the North London derby could that be almost a watermark moment in Arsenal's in his tenure of Arsenal? Because I think, like you know, we talked about Chabi Alonso, his, his his great friend earlier, and I think they're kind of similar in that they've kind of both very you know organized and kind of intelligent men. And I feel like Arteta has a real steel to his personality that's maybe underestimated. I think uh, at, at times. And do you think that he's kind of instilling a bit of a backbone to this Arsenal team, and that you know signs are beginning to be shown that maybe. Um, his arsenal will be different to the arsenal that we've known for the last decade. Regarding this week, it's been... Uh, mm. Oh, jeez. I just moved the stool, but my laptop was on. Um, regarding the last week that Arsenal has been through, um, it was a really sloppy display against Olympiacos. He kind of changed the team around, um, and I think everyone thought that the job was basically done with three away goals it still wasn't to um play the way we did it was really lethargic it was really bad it was a really bad half of football and then they followed that up with the first half of what we saw against West Ham going three nil down and um I think I think the it it's just been a very odd week to show the kind of characteristic to come back from 3-0 down to draw 3-3 is as you said one of the highlights of this team this team has a lot more character under Arteta a little bit more steel under them and I think we need he is for a lot of the part from when he first came in he was very much the saving grace of the whole Arsenal club um just with the petty back um the petty board and backroom staff, things that were going on to win an FA Cup as your first, what, 
nine months as a new manager is some doing, especially when Arsenal was not one of the favourites, one of the underdogs in that, um, especially in the from the semi-finals. Um, so yeah, during COVID as well. During yeah, during COVID, well. COVID, and he was the probably the first manager to catch COVID as well, which. First manager to catch COVID and win an FA Cup. Um, yeah, so I think you are right that he he is a San Sebastian born man. Born went to Barcelona B, Barcelona PSG, then Rangers, then Everton. Like you don't go that way um, and not have some steel about you and some wits. The same way Xavi Alonso at Liverpool had kind of you had to be witty within the, the squad you were in and I think Arteta does try and instill that in his team um, however the 3-3 three, three, I don't know what kind of fake dynamic space occupation stuff he tried to copy off Pep in that first half but it didn't work it did not work it, it, everyone was dragged out positions center backs drawn completely away from goal mean, meaning west ham had numerical superiority in our third which is completely it, it was an absolutely shocking display and from like the 40th minute or 35th minute he kind of clicked and got Playing to our usual forty-three-one, you know, um, trying to get the ball from our sixes up to tens like quite quickly. Um, so it was disastrous, but also very for char- characteristically fulfilling by the end of it. And I think that is a good kind of um, motto of what's going on at Arsenal right now. I never have a. Footballers I love more than Tim Cahill and Mikel Arteta in that Everton team when I was 10, 11, 12. They're my two favourite players by a country mile. Um, John, we'll bring you in a second, but just first, Jasmine, um, how good was Martin Odegaard? I love him so much. It, like, from a club who had Meza Ozil and Alexi Sanchez as one po- at one point, um, we've been missing that kind of quality and having Erdogan alone instills that quality that we once had and as I said about Xavi Alonso possibly going to Gladbach it's one of those players you completely forgot about and it doesn't really make sense to be actually Xavi Alonso going to Gladbach makes sense you didn't think Erdegaard would just suddenly end up at Arsenal (laughs) It, it just seems like kind of how when we got Meza Ozil I didn't think that was possible um but yeah the way he dominates that Arsenal attack along normally with Emil Smith Rowe and uh, Bukayo Saka, it it's just he's just phenomenal. John, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, just to mention the West Ham Arsenal game, I thought Callum Chambers was excellent at right back. He's kind of been this in between guy who's been either a fullback or a centre half for a long part of his career. But uh, I thought he was I thought he was excellent against West Ham to give him credit and. Um, I think Arteta deserves a lot of uh, applauds for his substitutions. He really, he really went for it, and uh, in the end, they got what was a deserved draw. So, uh, I think he's really on an upward trajectory as a coach, and it will be kind of interesting to see what they do in the summer as regards to transfers, whether they can get Odegaard again, because I don't think he has a clause 
that gives them a, a, the opportunity to buy him in the summer. So whether they can get him on loan again or whether they can sign him permanently would be interesting because they have a nice uh, nucleus going forward. I think they missed Gabriel at the back against West Ham. He'll slot in there when he's back again. And they have Kieran Tierney and they have Saka and they have uh, Martinelli. So they have some nice young players. And if they can add Odegaard to that, I expect them to improve again. That's a nice point on Chambers as well. Um, he was kind of at fault for the first goal, but after that and that initial nerves, which I think was caused a bit by everyone and the tactic that they, that Arteta put, um, he greatly stepped up. And um, his link-up with Martin Ertegaard for, I think, the second goal was lovely. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad to see him back. And he does give good right-back cover apart from the first goal but it will be interesting because I haven't really been impressed with Hector Bellerin recently which is something I don't really want to say (laughs) but there had been more rumors about him leaving in the summer so that could probably be something. John pithily observed that uh, Moyes, David Moyes the bed on our WhatsApp group chat. Uh, John do you want to elaborate on that? Well, okay. As much as Mikel or, or yeah, Mikel Antonio hit the post from like a yard out with a chance from side Ben Rama's cross, I thought that when it was three 0 at half time, I thought, yeah, Moyes is just going to double down defensively here and try and be as negative and as dour as possible and not look to build on the lead. Lo and behold, he brings on Ryan Fredericks for uh, Jared Bowen. He brings on Mark Noble. So I thought, yeah, he's just making a rod for his own back here. He's not trying to build on this. He's just going to sit back. And it, it's there's no signs to it. But sometimes in football, you just know that a team is going to, just going to invite on so much pressure onto themselves. And it's going to make them, you know, it's going, it, it's going to be, you know, making, it's going to be cutting their nose to spite their own face, so to speak, instead of trying to trying to build on their lead. And, you know, attack is the best form of defense and all of these other cliches. But uh I don't think it was that massively surprising that Arsenal came back from this just because Moyes, and he deserves all the credit in the world, by the way, because I think for out of any Premier League manager, he's doing the best job considering his resources this season. But I just thought in the instance of this game that uh, he, he would do, he would uh, be very, uh, very conservative with his league, quite like Mourinho has been off in this season and that will come back to bite him. And it's so transpired. But again, like Arteta deserves a lot of credit for that. Robbie, a um, couple of interesting results in the Europa League for Spanish teams. And we're coming to the end of their episode now, but just to finish up on this. Um, Granada obviously lost 2-1 to Mould, but uh, progressed by virtue of their first leg victory uh, back at Las Carmenas. And then followed up with a 2-1 defeat at the hands of um, Valencia in La Liga. Um, but they're reliving the best moment of their history, you could say, under Diego Martinez right now. Uh, similarly, Villarreal had a maybe better week in terms of optics. They beat Dynamo Kiev 2-0 after winning 2-0 in the first leg to progress to the quarterfinals, uh, or to the semifinals, no, to the quarterfinals, sorry, um, of the Europa League. And then they sim- similarly beat Villarreal, uh, they beat, sorry, Jesus, they beat Cadiz uh, yesterday afternoon um, 2-1 uh, to record their second back-to-back victory in La Liga after quite a poor run uh, domestically. Um what do you think of the jobs that Diego Martinez and Una Emery are doing this season? I mean, the narrative around both is quite different, I think. I mean, I think with Granada, Martinez is already in the, you know, in the black, you could say. He's already done the job. They're living the best moments of their history. Everything they do from now on is a bonus. They're playing United in the Europa League, as John mentioned earlier. 
I think that's personally a step too far for this team. But I think that, you know, they're living the dream. Absolutely. Um, Emery, it's a bit of a different situation. I think, you know, Villarreal's drop-off in form compared to last season domestically, especially given the way they started this season and the players they brought in the summer, is not ideal. And he's under pressure, as we both know. Um, and I think that the dialogue around Villarreal is that the ownership want the Europa League. They want the trophy. So how do you categorize the job each are doing? And how do you think each are fixed going into this final run-in? Do you think that Emery is under pressure to deliver the Europa League? Do you think he can do it? And how far do you think um, Martinez can bring Granada? Yeah, I think Martinez is doing a wonderful job. Um, he's been linked or been talked about as a potential Cholo Simeone replacement at Atletico. Uh, well, it was only a couple of years ago Granada were relegated, and and they I think it was they had like in their squad there was like no local born players, and there was they, they were gone away from kind of the the community their 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 city. Uh, they had no kind of representative from their city. They had no connection to the city anymore. It was just kind of like a, a lost project. And Tony Adams came in, tried to save them, and they were just completely lost. They went back, re, re restored a lot of their values, and kind of came back now with this um this effort. And it's been it's been really been really fun to watch and really interesting to see just how far they can go. Because because at the moment they're in a kind of nothing left, nothing nothing to lose situation. They're mid table in La Liga uh, and they are obviously playing Man United a massive draw uh, for them um, I'm not entirely sure what the, I mean it, when you look at the squad like when you look at the team they've got some good young players like Anlon, Yangel, Herrera and, and, and that but it's kind of like an old ageing squad so you'd wonder if it will, how long this will last? Like it's probably, um, it, it, and I, I don't want to um, kind of say this and be wrong, but uh, because I hope I'm not. But you do feel like it probably is. They are peaking at the moment, as you say, like playing Man United in the um, in the in the Europa League last eight. Like, um, and then as for Villarreal. Yeah, it kind of frustrates me to see when when people say or when when there's talk about Emery being under pressure. Like, um, he's the he he was, yeah. I think we demand results too quickly. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, Villarreal are, I mean, what are they going to compete for? Uh, like, I understand the Europa League is is the goal, but in knockout football, like anything and anything can happen. And um and. In he's going to need another summer, maybe or another maybe transfer window or two to kind of build a team around uh, uh, to to his liking. He was when when he took over Villarreal, he was pretty much put in place as the as he is the star of the show, um, and uh, as a former PSG and Arsenal manager coming back to Villarreal, and um, it would be kind of short-sighted if they were to sack him now like results haven't been disastrous they've been missing their very best player Jared Moreno for long spells this season I mean I don't really know what people expect from uh, Villarreal like I mean they, um, maybe a, a top four finish but at the end of the day you're, you, there's only really one space up for grabs in La Liga and that's uh, and that's maybe Sevilla you're, you're fighting with Sevilla for that top four and Sevilla under Lopetegui have been excellent so kind of frustrates me when people talk about how he's under pressure and that but um, I guess that's also the nature of football and, and, and modern football so uh, I 
I don't I don't know. Like I mean, they'll have to probably maybe get to a semi final or final of the Europa League, and then we'll see in the summer. But I think it will be short sighted for Real to get rid of him if um, if they have installed him as the head of the project and the, and the kind of star of the show. Moreno is back and absolutely flying at the moment. Really is playing good football. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how. His and Pau Torres are kind of touted in the summer. I think, you know, there could be some suitors, definitely for Pau Torres, given his age. Um, and it's very rare to have a centre-back of his quality become not available, but, you know, gettable in the market. And then simultaneously, you have um, Gerard Moreno, who's just, you know, performing so, so well. One of the best, probably the best Spanish player in La Liga at the moment, you could say. And I'm sure he'll have suitors in the summer, even though he's never really been linked with a move abroad um, or to another team in La Liga. You know, just it's just going to come back down to how much money is available in the summer. Whether Pau Torres sees a move as being a step up, and um, and and what clubs are in need of a left-footed centre back. So yeah, and, and Jared Moreno, absolutely bizarre that he hasn't been linked with a, with 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 the top top clubs because he's he's basically an unknown outside of Spain. And I was watching a game with one of my mates the other day, and he was just saying. Um, I told him, what's this Jared Moreno guy? And he was like, oh, who's he? And this guy knows football. And I'm like, you don't know Jared Moreno? He's like, I've never heard of him in my life. And I was like, oh, my God, he's world class, this guy. And, uh, yeah, it's kind of bizarre that he hasn't been linked away. But um, if, if, if Villarreal can keep the two of them, build a project around them and Emery, I think they'd be in a pretty good shape. Very aesthetically pleasing footballer too, Jared Moreno, the way he hits the ball, left footer. Very elegant player and really enjoyable to watch him play. Um, but yeah, just to bring it up to our moments and player of the week uh, segment. Um, for me, it's one of the same. I know it's kind of cheating, but I think you know I'm the host, so I can do it. Like you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> um, I would say my moment and player of the week was definitely Yasin Bono, the Sevilla goalkeeper. He actually scored a late equaliser against Real Valladolid at the Jose Zirla on Saturday evening um, after coming up uh, for a corner. Um, and he's just a very good goalkeeper, I think. You know, he came into the team last season when Thomas Vlasic, their first choice, was injured um, and basically performed so well that he retained his place. Um, very good character, very vocal character, organises the back four really well, big, tall, imposing guy, uh, Moroccan, can- Canadian-born, but a Moroccan international. Um, actually met him in Seville before, nice fella as well. Um, so yeah, I think his goal scoring turn for Sevilla against Valladolid was my moment of the week and he's my player of the week. Uh, Jasmine, who's yours and what is yours? I'm going to go for a slightly not on the pitch one. Um, Joe Hart accidentally putting on his Instagram story, job done <laughs> over Spurs. <laughs> um, uh, Spurs, uh, who did they play again? Oh, it was like group. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I was getting confused with Slavia Prague. Um, yeah, just putting job done, <laughs> both player and moment of the week, and then um, having to apparently wake up and check his phone and do a video saying it was his social media team, <laughs> and him and in this video already having a Spurs hoodie on it as well. It was great. It's one of those things like you just love to see in football when it completely goes wrong. A lot of Spurs fans angry too that Luka Modric tweeted congratulating Denver Zagreb uh, for the victory. Obviously, he's a former Spurs player. Um, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, John, what's your player of the week and what's your moment of the week? Okay, so I'm going to say my player of the week is Luis Suarez because he broke the 500 career goal mark with, uh, this weekend. Um 
And I think that's more impressive when you consider the context of his career. So at Ajax, he played as part of a front three with like Klaasian Huntelaar. So he wasn't always the main focal point. You know, he was in a team that spread the goal around goals around rather than just being the attacking figurehead who would invariably score the bulk of goals. He goes to Liverpool and then he shares those goal scoring duties with Sturridge and with Sterling. He's not only just a goal scorer, he also assists a lot. He's actually got 275 career assists, if you can believe that. It's absolutely amazing. Then he goes to Barcelona and initially he's part of a front three with Neymar and Messi. And again, he, they spread the goals around. He assists a lot. So it's not just a case where he's stat padding by taking tons of penalties and everything flows through him. He's managed to be entirely prolific, but also a great team player, which doesn't always necessarily work out that way. Like Jasmine was mentioning earlier, how, and you were saying as well, how like Haaland maybe would look quite poor in a lot of metrics that aren't goal scoring whereas Suarez has the goal scoring and he also has the supreme all-round play so for that momentous feat I think that he is my player of the week and my moment of the week was the free kick scored by Armand Lorient who actually plays for Lorient funnily enough spelled slightly differently but he ha- he hit an absolutely sublime free kick from all at 35 yards out into the top corner and it was it was absolutely amazing and against Nantes and looking back at his uh, at his career, kind of career highlights, he's done that relatively often. So uh, at 22 years old, who knows? Maybe he's a player that we could see moving on to a bigger stage at some point. But uh, his free kick was absolutely amazing, and that's that's my moment of the week. Robbie, how about you? Yeah, I was actually going to pick Luis Suarez, but not for his accomplishments. It was more his kind of how frustrated he looked. He was absolutely. I've never seen a man as annoyed uh, against um against Chelsea and against Alaves. I think he's just just an interesting player to watch. His, his diving, his histrionics, his um his uh, frustration. But I, I'll pick um, instead. I'll pick uh, Serginho Dest, who scored a brace last night. Um, I find just for what he kind of uh, means to this new look Barcelona, I think. Um, and 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 I think it, uh, uh, Ronald Koeman has been kind of criticising the past, and probably rightly so, for a lot of his stints at Everton and 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 the end of Valencia, but. He back. He wanted Sergio Dest, and nobody, well, not nobody, but he was a kind of an unknown player. He arrived, and he's just been absolutely sensational in that wing back role for Barcelona. Um, La Liga crying out for kind of international superstars. The uh, Americans are have taken over, or not taken over, but they've uh, made a massive impact in the Bundesliga, and I think they're going to soon enough. It's going to be. Um, uh, we're going to have a lot more uh, young American players in La Liga too. So Dest for me, just uh, everything exciting about Barcelona, about uh, about him as a player and as uh, the Americans that are kind of coming through. Conrad De La Fuente too is also thereabouts in the Barcelona League system from Miami. I think he is from Haitian parents. Um, and for your moment, is the Dest goal your moment as well as the player? Or? Oh, yeah, I didn't actually pick a moment. Yeah, we'll go with the desk goal. Actually, you know what? There was a moment where he turned two Real Sociedad defenders last night, and it was uh, it was Messi-esque, so I'll pick that, given the fact that I picked uh, Dest. But, uh, uh, yeah, Sergio Dest, that dribble in the first half, he, he didn't get a free for it or anything, but it, was, uh, it showed his technical ability, and then the goals that went with it. Uh, t- top class fantastic that's pretty much it for today guys um, where can we find you on socials Jasmine what's your social um, underscore Jasmine Barber 
um, are probably not. I'm probably not writing anything any this week and taking a break, especially with this Glabach news. So you'll probably see me around speaking about that there. Fantastic, and John. You can find me at NotoriousJIS on Twitter. I'll probably have a piece on Anfield Index by the end of the week, analysing what Liverpool may, what way Liverpool may approach the Madrid tie, I suspect. They might look to play on the counter-attack, so uh, that should be out in the next couple of days to a week. Robbie? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Robbie J. Dunn, and uh, I'll probably be writing about uh, Ronald Koeman's revolutionising Barcelona with the wing-backs and how that's improved Jordi Alba, Sergio Des, and just made them look a much more solid and better side. Sounds good, sounds good. And for me, you can get me at Azofili, A-Z-U-L-F-E-E-H-L-Y on Twitter. Uh, to keep up to date with everything that's going on um so yeah thanks for joining us guys we really appreciate it and um, i hope you enjoy the international break i hope there's not too much news to go around that we can kind of take a bit of a break and return in two weeks time re-energized to dive back into the world of european football if you enjoyed this episode please like share review um and spread the word thanks guys and bye